0: Let us continue worshiping our Lord by opening his wonderful book, his holy book, to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're just joining us today, we've been in an expository series over the last few months in the book of Ecclesiastes, a book written by King Solomon. And we've been looking at the first couple of chapters so far. And today we're looking at chapter 2, verses 18 through 26. Today's Sermon title is enjoy life with god. Ecclesiastes 2:18 through 26. King Solomon writes, thus i hated all the fruit of my labor for which i had labored under the sun for i must leave it to the man who will come after me and who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which i have labored By acting wisely under the sun. This too is, my translation says vanity, but it's hevel in Hebrew. I'll explain what it means later, but this too is hevel. Therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is Hevel, and a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and his striving, with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is Havel. There is nothing good in man that he is able to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is Hebel and striving after wind. Today we want to look at What does it mean to enjoy life with God? If you are one of God's people, if you belong to God, there is joy in life. There is joy in life. And sometimes we don't see it. Sometimes we become workaholics, which he addresses here in this passage. Sometimes we focus on our work, our labor, instead of focusing on the Lord. Now, this is the last section here of Solomon's own experience in life. It's not the last part of the book. We have many more chapters to go. But he's been telling us about his experience when he ran from the Lord, when he decided that he was going to try his own path in life. If you read 1 Kings, it says that his wives tempted him with idols. He had many wives and many concubines, and he built places for them to worship, and he turned away from the Lord. But I believe that Ecclesiastes is him turning back to the Lord right before his death and writing an account of some of the things he tried in life that were of no meaning. They were fleeting. They were a mist. They were a vapor. He learned the hard way. He stumbled foolishly through life for many years. And he wrote this account so that others would learn from it. So that God's people would look at this book and not fall into those Same traps and snares and pits. He's tried many things so far, he's told us from chapter 1. He has tried to answer this question. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? What's the point? What's the point when life is over? Is there anything left? Is there a gain in anything I've done? Is there a surplus? Anything left over? And he's tried to answer that question in his life by chasing many idols, many things. He sought answers in creation, in the world, and he didn't find any answers there. He sought answers in human history. Maybe studying all that has been done in the past would indeed help him to answer this question. He couldn't find the answer there. He said, I'm going to study the realm of science. I'm going to get educated. I'm going to get my PhD and four or five different disciplines. The answer wasn't found there. It wasn't found in human wisdom itself, studying philosophy. He said, I studied all the ancient, wise men of ancient times and found nothing. And then he said, pleasure. Beginning of chapter two, he says, I'm going to give myself to pleasure. I'm going to try alcohol, the party lifestyle. I'm going to try real estate, building homes and pools and vacation homes and all these nice things that people have. And he says, I'm going to try to find more and more possessions, money, and things. All of that, he says, it's hevel, it's a mist, it's a vapor, it's temporary. It doesn't last. It's not the answer. But each of those was an idol in his life. And many times they're idols in our lives as well. He propped them up as an idol. He followed them for a while. Not that any of these necessarily are wrong in and of itself, but he followed them as an idol. He worshipped them. He spent all his time doing them. And what was the answer? There was no answer. It's gone. When he dies, it's all going away. And so he concludes that today, returning to this idea of labor, specifically giving everything you have to your work, to the thing that you love to do, want to do, your business, your job, whatever it is that you do in life and spend your time working on. So that's the first section we're going to look at today. Then he concludes everything, chapters 1 and 2, he concludes on a positive note. People think Ecclesiastes isn't positive. They think it's negative. Some people think it's very pessimistic. It's not. We're going to see a main thread at the end of the section about enjoying life with God that runs all throughout the book. Well, let's look at this first section. The first section I've titled, if you're taking notes, Idolizing Work leads to despair. If everything else fails to bring ultimate advantage in life, Solomon thinks, perhaps I can just work harder at what I do. I can just work harder and build this thing better and store up something for my children who come after me. Maybe that's the answer. It's good to work. It's good to give to your children. Maybe that's the answer. Work hard as you can to build what you have and then leave it For your children, leave an inheritance, a legacy, something for them. Maybe it's your grandchildren, even. But Solomon's teaching us here, in the end, that it's just another false idol. It doesn't satisfy. Let's look how he says it here in verse eighteen. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor, for which I had labored under the sun. Now he just said back in in verse seventeen, where we finished last week, he says, "I hated life." For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is evil and striving after wind. And he had said this because whether you're wise or foolish, he said it's all the same. You end up dying in the end. Whether you're wise, whether you're foolish, you end up dying, and it's pretty much equal. Yeah, there is some advantage to wisdom in this life, but when you die, it's exactly the same. We both go into the ground, the wise man and the foolish man alike. Well, in this section here, he's going to open up the same idea, but this time on work and labor. Labor is mentioned multiple times in this section, verses 18 through 23. And he's teaching us that even though people give their lives to their work, to their job, to their company, to their business, the first problem you have with it is you can't keep it when you die. All that work you put in, and you can't take it with you. When you die, it's gone. He says, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. All that work, all that wealth that you've accumulated. And then you die. Your whole life. You've given to something your whole life. And you die. And you're gone. And you can't take it with you. There's a Jewish proverb that says there's no pockets in a burial shroud. Or maybe more familiar to us, George Strait says, I ain't never seen a hearse with a luggage rack. And you probably heard Billy Graham or some form of this. You can't take the U-Haul to the cemetery. There's good things in life that God blesses us with. But if you put all of your life into that, it's just going to rust when you're gone. You can't take it with you. You can't ship a container to heaven. In verse 19, he says, And who knows whether this person who follows him will be a wise man or a fool. First of all, you can't take it with you. Secondly, though, he says you don't know who's going to get it after you die. You've accumulated something your whole life, and then you got to leave it to your children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, but you have no idea what they're going to do with it. You don't know. Even if your children are wise, what about their children and their children? And yet, he says, he will have control over all the fruit of my labor, for which I've labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is Hevel. How quickly a foolish heir kind of lose everything. Most family fortunes are lost within one or two generations. How quickly. And Solomon's a little bit upset about this. You can see it. He says, it's my labor and that person is going to benefit from me acting wisely. I acted wisely. I grew this thing. I made this money. I had this retirement, he says. And they're going to get it. They did nothing. And who knows how long it's going to last with them. All that hard work. All that hard work, he says. Now, he's just being real. Life under the sun. If all you look at is life under the sun, this is true. This is it. He hasn't yet taken God into consideration. He's going to by the end of our passage today. But he says, all this hard work I put into building up a company, a retirement fortune, and I've got to give it to somebody who's never lifted a finger to build it, to produce it. Now, this actually happened to Solomon. We looked last week at when Solomon died, his son, Rehoboam, took over the kingdom and was so foolish that he split the kingdom. Ten tribes split off to form the northern kingdom, Israel. And his son only had the two tribes and the land in the south, the southern kingdom of Judah. But what about all that wealth? That's the kingship, but what about all that wealth? Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 12, and we'll see what happened to the man that Solomon left his fortunes to First Kings 12 verse 16. So this is what happened after the northern ten tribes rejected Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and they put up a new king Jeroboam, who was not Solomon's son. in first Kings 12:16 it says, "When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, what portion do we have in David?" in the line of David, in the the king that's ruled from Jerusalem. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now look after your own house, David. So Israel departed to their tents. But as for the sons of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death. Maybe I'll send my my slave driver out to them and they'll listen to him. They killed him. And King Rehoboam made haste to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Now flip over to chapter 14. 1 Kings 14.25. What about all this wealth? 1 Kings 14.25. Now it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam. He had only been king for five years after Solomon died. That Shishak, the king, the pharaoh of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. And he took everything, even taking all the shields of gold which Solomon had made. Gone. Five years after Solomon died. The wisest man who's ever lived And five years, his son is the king and loses everything. The best he could do is build some bronze shields to prop up in the place of the gold ones. It says in verse 27 that he made shields of bronze in their place and committed them to the care of the commanders of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. It's all gone. He's lost it. And this is the wisest man who's ever lived, who left a book of Ecclesiastes to teach his son Not to do those things. This is how things happen. From a perspective under the sun, upon this earth, everything you work for gets left behind to somebody else. And eventually, they're going to lose it all as well. This is Hebel. This is fleeting. This is temporary. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't put all your effort into your work and your company and your job just to build up a fortune because it's going to be gone. This is hard for us to hear sometimes in America. We're a very profitable country. People can make a lot of money, regardless of what some say these days. It's very easy uh, to make a good living. It's very easy to build things, to be an entrepreneur. But he's saying, if you put everything there, if you bank your life on that, it's fleeting. It's evil. Verse 20, Therefore, I completely despaired Literally, I caused my heart to despair. I had a pity party, he's saying, of all the fruit of my labor, which I had labored under the sun. I've worked hard my whole life, and now I'm realizing what's going to happen. He made it an idol. He idolized his work. And then he woke up at this point and realized what he'd done. I spent my whole life idolizing this, my wealth. What is an idol? An idol's... Anything you put before God. And it's clear that Solomon turned away from God. It's clear that he had an idol here. You might say, well, I'm a Christian. I worship the Lord. I don't have any idols. I don't have any statues in my house that I worship and bow down to. Well, that's true. Hopefully, you don't have statues in your house that you bow down to. Hopefully, you don't have any saints in your yard that you bow down to or pray to. If you do, you need to throw them out today. But there's a type of Idol of the heart. And the reformer John Calvin said, our hearts are just idol factories. We're always producing these idols. We always want to worship something other than God. We have to continually be drawn back to God. That's His grace pulling us back. In Colossians 3.5, which we heard a sermon on a few weeks ago, Paul says that greed is idolatry. Greed. And you can be greedy. You can be obsessed with your work, your wealth. That is idolatry. And Solomon has driven himself to despair. He says, I despair of life. What's the point of living? He's living a life running from God. He's living a life. He's trying to lose himself in his work. I'll just focus on my work. I'm not going to think about God. i did not think about what I need to do with my family, my son who's going to take over. I'm going to focus on my work, myself, my wealth. And we saw in chapter 2 all the things that he built and accumulated. But what's the eventual end of idolizing your work? You just despair. You just realize one day I've worked so hard for what? When is enough enough? When have you made enough to live on and you're just now working for your selfishness, for your idolatry? Do you have to have one million in the bank? Two million in the bank? Five million in the bank? Then I'll have time to really get to know my church. Then I'll have time to really read my Bible. We can't say things like that. That's making money and work an idol. And he says here in verse 21, when there is a man who's labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. He's talking about himself. He, he, he did labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. He, he built something in his life. He had wisdom which means good discernment. He made the right choices. Not always. Obviously, that's why he's writing this book. But when it comes to the ways of the world and building things and administration and business, he had wisdom. He had knowledge. He understood. He knew how things worked. He knew how to succeed. He had skill. Which means that he did succeed in accomplishing the goals that he set out to do. And then he says... He gives his legacy to one who's not labored with those same things. With them. With wisdom, knowledge, and skill. It all goes to the next person who's not labored with those things. They didn't are in those things. And the word for legacy in the NASB is interesting. It's, it's not advantage. It's not the Hebrew word yitron that we have been seeing in previous verses like chapter 1 verse 3. But here it's, Legacy in the NASB. Uh, ESV says everything. The NET Bible has inheritance. Another translation has portion. It's the same as reward. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 10. The reward there that he says he has. That pleasure brings some reward, he says. 2.10 All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Pleasure does bring some reward, he says. And I'm leaving a reward behind, but it's going to go to somebody who doesn't have knowledge, wisdom, and skill. All my life's work. This, too, is Hevel, temporary, fleeting, a mist, a vapor. And he even says it's a great evil. It's a bad thing. He's not accusing God of being evil here. He's just saying that's a bad thing when we look at it from under the sun perspective. That's sad. It's bad. It feels like a great evil. To be a great businessman means not just that you are growing your business and serving the Lord and using your wealth rightly, but he's saying here, you give your life to that thing. It is your idol and you love it. And what happens? It's gone. Verse 22: For what does a man get in all his labor and his striving, which he labors under the sun? Now he's got a really selfish question here. This is really the high point of his selfishness, of his experience that he's been telling us about in these two chapters. What do I get out of this? What do I get out of this? What's in it for me? What do I get out of this whole deal? I work hard. For what? What's the point? Solomon says. That's his final solution that he comes up with. All these years that he's wandered from the Lord, tried all these things. What's the point? It ends in nothing. Without the Lord, it ends in nothing. I've chased all these things. I made them my idols. And for what? This week I read a story about a guy in the 90s who built this computer company and he was just making computers like crazy and he took his stock public and in one day he went from working out of his garage, it wasn't Bill Gates, but it was some other smaller company, he made $9 million in one day when his stock went public. That very day he had a new red Ferrari that went into a guardrail and the man instantly died. $9 million and then he died. Gone. Gone. And Solomon says, here's the lesson. It's not what happens to all this work and wealth after you die. That's not the most important thing. The most important thing is who you are. What happens to you in this life? The person that you become. If you become a workaholic, if you become an idolater of your wealth, then it's for nothing. Who do you become? Are you going to be a God-fearing worshiper as you work and serve and provide for your family? Or are you going to be an idolater? And look how he finishes it out in verse 23. He says, "If I haven't convinced you yet. Look at this. Because all his days, his task is painful and grievous. That's the third problem that he lists here. First of all, as you lose it all when you die. Secondly, it goes to somebody you don't even know what they're going to do with it. And thirdly, if you make work the most important thing in your life, you can't enjoy it because it's become an idol. It's become a God that cannot bless. It's actually the opposite. It doesn't bless you, it hurts you. It's painful. It's a God that cannot bless you. It's just painful and grievous. And he says, even at night, his mind, his heart does not rest. This too is heaven He can't even sleep. He's got insomnia because he's worried. What about the company? Who's going to run this thing when I die? What about those customers? You know, he's probably not thinking to that level, but he did have vineyards and such, and he's probably thinking about his managers. And who's going to run that vineyard, and who's going to take care of of that house? He's a workaholic. He can't even sleep. He's working at night. He's working in his head. It's like so many of us. we, We take phone calls, texts, and emails on nights and weekends. Always working we got to work. We've got to provide for the family. Are we providing for the family? Are we going above and beyond that, just providing for the family? We're just addicted to work. Solomon's burning the candle at both ends, but for what? No lasting value? He's going to burn out? This is him burning out and telling us what happened? It's all Hebel. It's fleeting. Dr. Bill Barrick, in his commentary, says, In our day... A workaholism drives men and women so that they do not get the proper amount of sleep to maintain good health. Does the job make us a workaholic, he asked? Is it the rapid pace of modern technology? No, it's our own self-centeredness. Like Solomon, we rob ourselves of joy and rest. We obtain true joy and rest only when we call, uh, only when we put all our cares upon the Lord and allow him to work within us that which he is pleased to do. got to trust in him that's going to be our next point in a minute but i just want to call your attention to psalm 127 the first two verses here you probably are familiar with this psalm but psalm 127 1 and 2 unless the lord builds the house they labor in vain who build it unless the lord is with you in this you're laboring in vain there's nothing to it unless the lord guards the city The watchman keeps awake in vain. You can put all the guards that you want, but if the Lord's not watching that city, it's going to be attacked. It's vain for you to what? Rise up early. It's vain for you to retire late. Never sleep, just always work, always work. It's vain. It has no substance to it. To eat the bread of painful labors. Oh, you might provide for yourself, but you're working to the extent... To almost kill yourself. For he, God, gives to his beloved even in his sleep. The one who follows the Lord and trusts in the Lord doesn't have to be a workaholic. You don't have to worship work and money and wealth. Your business and your job. The Lord's going to give you peace. He's going to give you sleep when you trust in him. You just go do your best for your employer or for your business. You come home at night and you can rest. Because you trust in the Lord. Amen. Dr. Barak says Ecclesiastes records the spiritual journey that Solomon took from sleepless nights to the restful slumber of the righteous. He's recording that journey. He says, I couldn't even sleep back then. Now, before I die, he says, I've got the right view. The Lord has brought me back. So let's look at that. Number two, second point. Trusting God leads to joy. If you idolize work, that leads to despair. The opposite of that Is joy. How do you get that? By trusting God. Now you might think that sounds cliche, but he's applying it very specifically here. With these verses, in verses 24 through 26, he's making a major turning point in the book. See, up until this point, everything's just been like, what's the point? I've chased this, there's no point. I've chased this, there's no point. It's striving after wind. You try to grab it and it's gone. But now, God comes into the picture. It's not under the sun perspective. It's God's perspective. God's suddenly there. Now he has mentioned God back in chapter 1, verse 13, but it was in passing. It was very quickly. With these verses, he's making a major turning point in the book and he's concluding the section on his life and summing it up. And he says the only way to look at our work under the sun is to see it from God's perspective if we see it from our own perspective and we leave God out of it and do our own thing, where do we end up? Idle despair. But the God who blesses, the God who gives good things, if we trust in Him, it's amazing. He blesses us. And suddenly, work is there for our enjoyment, for blessings, but it's not an idol. Look at verse 24. There's nothing good in man. Now all the translations say something else. They say something like, There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself. But literally, it should be translated, There's nothing good in man. The better than translation assumes that something fell out of the Hebrew Bible. That a letter dropped out. And so they... They insert it back in, say this is what must have been there to make sense. But if we take the literal translation of what is there, it says something theologically, doesn't it? There's nothing good in man. So if you just say, well, there's nothing better. All this pain and grief, there's nothing better than just enjoy the good things God gives. No, he's making a stronger statement. There's nothing within us that is good. And he's going to go on to say, only good comes from God. There's nothing in us, there's nothing in man that is good. Let's take it literally. The ability to enjoy good things in life does not come from man. If you enjoy anything in this life that is good, it doesn't come from you. You might think it does. You might think you've done all this work. But Solomon had it all, and here he is saying, look, there's nothing good in us. It doesn't come from us. The ability to eat and drink and enjoy our life doesn't come from us. It comes from God. A man in himself is not capable of enjoying things like that. When you have a moment of joy, let's say you're, you're celebrating, you're having a celebration with friends, with family. That comes from the Lord. That does not come from us. You can try to do things with your own effort, but the Bible says that's pointless. Everything good comes from the Lord. John Currid, in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, he says the preacher now understands that there's nothing intrinsic, there's nothing innate to man that will cause him to find purpose, meaning, and satisfaction in life. Man must realize he's not the source of all things. That's our problem. We think we're the source. We've done it. True significance and purpose, he says, does not originate in man himself. See, this is pointing us to the right source of good things, God. Even when we receive good things and don't acknowledge God, they're still coming from God. So look what he says. He continues here that the ability to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. Even to tell yourself, I've done a good job and I enjoy this labor. That doesn't come from us. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. That's where good things come from. You work, whether it's at home, or raising kids, or homeschooling, or going to a job. You work, you put in all this effort. What do you get out of it when you're gone? Nothing, it passes on. When God's in the picture, when we take God's perspective, suddenly we realize we have many blessings, don't we? It comes from the hand of God. The portion that we get, the reward that we get for our work, the enjoyment comes from God. This is a theme that comes up all throughout the book. Turn with me to chapter 3, verse 12. Now you tell me after we read all of these, if this book is pessimistic and negative. He uses some of those phrases to get our attention. But look at this thread, this theme that we we traced out when we did an intro to the book. Look at it now again, 3.12. I know that there's nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. Work is the gift of God. Enjoying your work is the gift of God. Receiving money so that you can buy food and drink and celebrate the good times, that's from the Lord. Chapter 5, verse 18. Here's what I've seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and to enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. God's given us a specific amount of time, a short life. And the good things that come our way come from him. And that's our reward, not our ultimate reward. Reward, Not our ultimate advantage for the believer in heaven, but some good things in this life. A portion of good things. Even better things are to come, the New Testament says, in heaven. Go to chapter 8, verse 15. We just keep seeing this come back up here. So I commended pleasure, for there's nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and drink and to be merry. And this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. If it's not sinful pleasure, if it's, if it's good and godly pleasure, things that make us feel good, it's not sin. That's a gift from the Lord. That's a good thing. You know, the Christian life is not one where we just frown all the time. Woe is me, you know, the president and the government and my life and my money and my bank account. I'm just looking for heaven. That's true. You're looking for heaven, I hope. But it says that God has given us good things in this life. And we ought to be thankful and we ought to be content. Be thankful. Be content. One more passage here. Uh, 9, chapter 9, verse 7. Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, let no, let not oil be lacking on your head. No, no, don't just walk around in sackcloth all the time. Unless you're called to be a prophet like John the Baptist, which we don't have today. You can dress nice. You can celebrate. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. God's given you a life. Yes, it's short. We need to remember that. Death is coming. But there's good things. Being married, he says, it's a good thing. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. When you have God as your main focus in life, then work becomes enjoyable. Because you're not focused on work as the main thing, but God. You're not focused on your wealth and your things, but God. It's God's grace. He gives us enjoyment in our labors. It's His grace. It's not just toil and labor never to enjoy in this life and then we go to finally enjoy some things in heaven. No, no. Heaven's beyond imagination, the Bible says. The kingdom of God is wonderful. But there are some good things in this life. Let's be thankful for that. Let's be content. Let's trust in the Lord. Now, this is quite different than the world thinks of eating and drinking. Isaiah twenty-two, thirteen, quotes the world's thinking. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we may die. So that's the atheist philosophy. That's the world's thinking. Paul quotes that again in, in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There's no point to life if God's not there, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead. But then he goes on to say, but he is. God is real. Of course he is. We know that he is. And Christ was raised from the dead. See what they're quoting there are worldly attitudes. The worldly attitude says nothing matters after this life. Have fun now. Enjoy life now. Because that's what matters. Make an idol of your work. That's fine. Because that's all there is. Today we say it like this. He who dies with the most toys wins. And even though people don't really say that. They live like that, don't they? They live like that. Always accumulating things. It's not at all what Solomon's saying here. He's not saying, live it up because tomorrow we die. He's saying, what does come your way that is good? Be thankful, be content, and find joy in it. Tomorrow we might die. And if you're with the Lord and you're trusting in Him, you're going to go and be with Him. But while you're alive, glorify Him, thank Him, and be content god has given us a lot in life god has given us good things blessings trust in him follow him and he'll give you even more good things now this isn't just old testament thinking this is in the new testament as well we often find things don't we in the old and the new here's what jesus said about worry and anxiety in the sermon on the mount matthew 6 32 For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first what? His kingdom. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. All the things you need in life will be given to you. That's not prosperity gospel. That's Jesus Christ gospel. Focus on Him. And God will take care of you. He takes care of the sparrows. He takes care of the flowers. Certainly he'll take care of his people. Jesus goes on. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now Paul says a lot about this in 1 Timothy. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. This is a problem that's always there for us. Whether you're in Solomon's day, whether you're in Ephesus in Paul's day, whether you live in San Antonio or Bernie today, it's always there. We tend to not be joyful in the Lord and His blessings. We tend to be reserved. We tend to be ungrateful. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected, if it is received with gratitude. Now, there is sin out there, and he's not talking about sin. But he's saying food, drink, blessings, friends, house. It's all good if it's received with gratitude, with thankfulness. Now, go to chapter 6 and verse 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Your growing in godliness is a good thing, and it's a great gain. And you ought to be content as you're growing in godliness. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. That sounds like Ecclesiastes. That sounds like Solomon, doesn't it? Paul was probably reading Ecclesiastes that week when he wrote this letter. Verse 8. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge man into ruin and destruction. Now one more verse. Chapter 6, verse 17 here. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. That means thinking that you're something important. That you've done it all. Not to be conceited. Or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. That was Solomon's problem. He fixes hope on the uncertainty of riches and he realizes they're going to be gone but fix your hope on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Wow, that's in the New Testament and the Old Testament. Enjoy the good things God has given you. Be thankful, be content, and stop chasing idols. Continuing on in Ecclesiastes, he says in verse 25, for who can eat and who can have enjoyment without Him? How can you even enjoy anything without God? If you're apart from God, you can't really have true joy. But those who trust in the Lord, those who belong to Him, they're the only ones who can really have the ability to enjoy life. If this is it, you can't enjoy life. If you know you're going to hell after this life, you certainly can't enjoy life. People joke about that. They they joke about hell being better, a big party. It's not, it's going to be worse. This is your best life now, if you're going to hell. How can you enjoy life without God? What else is there to have hope in? If you're trusting in God, then you know that everything is done for a purpose. That He's sovereign. That He's providentially over all things. That He's designed things to come our way. Not because we've done anything to earn them, but because He's gracious. Psalm 128. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. That's the key there. Fearing the Lord. Trusting the Lord. Who walks in His ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Or Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. Whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You give glory to God. Thank you, Lord, for this food. You ought to be thanking the Lord in your meals. Pray, not because of tradition, but because the Bible says. Give thanks to the Lord for your house, for your vehicle, for your job, for whatever it is that he's given you. I think this is why the Jews read Ecclesiastes on the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles, they brought in the harvest. They're celebrating God's blessings. And what book do they read? Ecclesiastes. Why? Because it's got this continuous theme. Enjoy the blessings from God. Enjoy the gifts that God has given. We can't enjoy anything in life without God. This is why the church father Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, O God. We're just wandering around like Solomon. We're restless until suddenly we find our rest in God. To rest in God means that you put all your trust in him. And we know that we do that through the person, Jesus Christ. Last verse here in verse 26. For to a person who is good in his sight. Now we need to understand who this is. The good in this verse are God's people. Now we've already been told there's nothing good in man. So where does that good come from? It comes from God. In other words, we might say the Righteous. Those who've been declared righteous by God. Those who are good according to God's standard. How do we get there? Because God has done something for us. He has saved us. This is the person who's been forgiven. The person at the end of Ecclesiastes who fears God and keeps his commandments. So to this person who's good in God's sight, look at what God has done. He's given wisdom and knowledge and joy to God's people to the righteous, to those that he has saved. He sovereignly saved them and he's continuing to give them good things. Wisdom, the ability to discern, make good choices, the ability to live practically in this world. Knowledge, the ability to know things and joy. That's why James says in James 1, in the New Testament, every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. Good things come from God, while to the sinner... This is where people don't like the rest of this verse sometimes. Look at God's sovereignty here. To the sinner, he has given the task of gathering and collecting, so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. You see what he's saying there? This is God's sovereignty. This is God's providence. The sinner, the one who doesn't follow God, the one who doesn't trust in God, the one who's not saved, we might say the unbeliever, according to New Testament language, the one who's not in covenant relationship with God. What has God given them to do? So the good person, the one who's saved, God gives wisdom and joy, knowledge. But to the sinner, the one who's running from God, the one who's living a life of sin, God still gives them something to do, to gather and to collect. That's what Solomon was talking about earlier in the passage. I worked my whole life to gather up this and then it's gone. I worked my whole life as a workaholic, loving my business, making it an idol, accumulating all this wealth, and then it's gone. And you see what he figured out here? Because God revealed it to him? That that's the task that God gives sinners. They amass this wealth, but what happens to it? It's given To the good in God's sight. It's just a working out of Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Or Joseph. His brothers. He said you meant this for evil. You meant this for evil. But God meant it for good. Abraham. He goes out. He receives all this wealth. Not because he was perfect. Not because he was righteous. Not because he was holy. Because God blessed him with it. Where'd that come from? Where'd all that wealth come from when the When the twelve tribes came into the land. It was already sitting there. God said, I'm taking you to a land of milk and honey. He took it away from sinners. He gave it to them. It's all over the Bible. Look at Ecclesiastes 8.12. It comes up again here. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times. And may lengthen his life. Still I know. That it will be well for those who fear God. Who fear him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man. And he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. So already, he's saying that God's going to shorten that person's life. It's not going to be good for those who don't fear the Lord and trust in him. Job 27, 16. Though a person piles up silver like dust and prepares garments as plentiful as the clay, though a person is very wealthy, he may prepare it, but the just will wear it and the innocent will divide the silver. It may not happen in your life. But it will happen. And probably will happen in your life. You just won't realize it. You'll get a windfall or you'll get a great job. And you won't realize that God has been orchestrating and working this all along for years so that you would get that. And it came somewhere in the past from an unbeliever who was selfishly building himself up. Proverbs 13, 22. The wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Proverbs 28, 8. He who increases his wealth by interest and usury gathers it for him who is gracious to the poor. Do you remember Jesus told the parable of the talents? And he gave people different amounts. And one guy went out and buried it in the ground and said, Oh Lord, I knew you're a hard man. I just put it in the ground. And what did Jesus say? You could have at least put it in the bank and made something off of it. And he cast him into the darkness, to the gnashing of teeth, into hell. Why? Because he showed himself not to be a true follower of his master. He wasn't obedient to his master. The others, though, they got more. They got the man who got thrown out. They got his money to invest and work with. And Jesus goes on to say that the person who's given much, even more will be given. Not because of ourselves, because of God's grace. He takes from the sinners, and eventually it comes to his people. Certainly that will be that way in the kingdom of God. Everything that will be left on the earth will belong to Christ and his people. But even sometimes in our lives as well. And he finishes out by saying, This too is Havel and striving after wind. And I think he's talking about the sinner here. The sinner is striving and collecting and gathering and they're building up and they're building up, but it's all just havel. It's temporary. It's a mist. It's a vapor. It's going to go away and end up in the hands of God's people. It's striving after wind. So don't idolize work. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Don't make a God of your work and of your money and your wealth. Trust in the one true God. Enjoy what he has given. Don't be the sinner here either that just works to gather. That's God's providence, yes, but you've seen the truth here. Trust in the Lord. Be the righteous ones, the good ones, that receive good things from God's hands. Joy in life doesn't come from striving after work and wealth, things, things. Joy in life and certainly joy in the afterlife only comes from the Lord. Well, how do, you, how do you become good? How do you become righteous? I want to know then. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust. Give, give your whole life to him. All your possessions, all your work, all that you are, give to the Lord Jesus Christ and then follow him. He says, take up your cross and follow me. That means deny yourself. Turn from your sin and follow the Lord. Solomon will say later, he'll say, fear the Lord and obey his commandments. Follow the Lord. Love him. Turn away from sin. Turn away from idols. Then you will be saved. Lord, we do call upon you this morning to help us with this. Our flesh wants to chase after other things, O God. But we only find rest in you. These things can't fulfill. They won't last. Even the good rewards you give us in this life from your gracious hand, the blessings, the portions, we can't idolize those either. We must look to you. You are the sole source of all joy and good. And we look to you for eternal salvation. It's through the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.